Hey church, it's December, which means Christmas is right around the corner, which means for many families and churches, it is the season of Advent. Advent is a word that comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. And so many church traditions celebrate the arrival of Christ. Uh, You know, about a month before Christmas hits, you pull out your Advent calendars or your Advent wreath and you light your different candles. Now, again, it depends on the church that you grew up in. Maybe you grew up in a church where you know this concept really well, or maybe like me, you grew up in a church where this wasn't celebrated. Well, I thought it would be nice for us to spend the next four weeks on a little mini series on Advent. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take these four key words that are connected to the lighting of a candle in in some traditions. Every week they light a different candle that represents a different word as it relates to the coming of Christ into the world. So we're going to talk today about hope. Next week we're going to talk about peace. In the third week we're going to talk about joy. And then finally we're going to finish up during Christmas and Christmas Eve itself, we're going to finish up with the concept of love and, of course, how Jesus connects to all of that. So I want to invite you to maybe sit down with your family over these next four weeks and listen to the podcast, hit pause, have some conversation around it, open up your Bibles, and really study this together. Maybe you'll have an Advent wreath you can light. Uh, well, don't write, light up the wreath, but the candles you can light, maybe you'll have an Advent calendar. That's what our family had when our kids were younger. I remember that was just so fun to have these Christmas traditions. And I, I really want to encourage you, especially families, to think about your traditions at Christmas time. Don't make Christmas just all about the materialism of the holiday. Lead your families, lead your kids to focus on Jesus. Now, I'm not against gifts or anything like that. I think it's great to celebrate remember the real reason for the season. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks as we study these key themes in the concept of Advent that Christian churches have celebrated for hundreds and hundreds of years. So today we're going to look at the theme of hope. And I, you know, I want to maybe start with a question. What do you hope for this Christmas? Again, if you're listening to this with your families, maybe hit pause and have a little conversation. What do you hope for for Christmas? Maybe it's not too late to get that to get that thing that you hope for for Christmas. I remember when I was a kid, it was always kind of shallow stuff. I, I, I remember as a 10-year-old, maybe 12-year-old, I wanted a bike. And I, I still remember the day it was kind of that big present, present in my childhood that still sticks with me. We opened up our presents that Christmas Eve. That's when we did it. We opened presents on Christmas Eve and and I got a Schwinn bike. I still have it in my garage. It still hangs up in my garage. It's pretty beat up. But at the time when I was 10, 12 years old, I was I just thought this was the greatest gift I could ever receive. I thought it cost my dad a million bucks. I, I mean, it was a big deal for me. Parents, maybe you can think and talk about what your favorite gift was when you were younger. Young people, kids, maybe you can talk about the favorite gift that you ever received. But the truth is, as we get older, it seems like we end up hoping for more serious things. A lot of times it's not so much, we're not so much hoping for gifts and presents and material things. We're hoping for, you know, maybe for some of you, if you're unmarried, you're hoping for a future spouse. Maybe this is something you've been praying and hoping for and and still that man or woman hasn't come into your life. Or maybe for some of you parents, 
you're you're hoping for a family member to come to faith. You, you know, your your son or your daughter has wandered away from the faith, and this Christmas, as we listen to Christmas songs and think about Jesus and invite people to church for Christmas, maybe that's your greatest hope: is you just want a son or daughter to come to faith in Jesus. For some of you younger couples, maybe you're hoping for a child. Maybe you've been praying and hoping for a child. Maybe you've been trying and and it's not working. And man, I know so many, so many families in our church that this is such a tender thing for when when you really want to to have a son or a daughter and it's it's not working according to plan and you're bringing it to God and you're praying to Him. It's not really necessarily a Christmas time prayer, but at Christmas time, when hope is in the air, these are the things sometimes that that draw us to sadness. You know, Proverbs 13, 12, it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. For all of us, when we have an expectation or a deep longing and it's postponed, it's deferred, it's put off, it's in the distant future, we're not sure if it's ever going to come. It does make the heart sick. And maybe some of you at Christmas time are heart sick because of hope deferred. Well, if that's you, then today's message should resonate because the concept of hope during Advent ties all the way back to the Jewish people in the Old Testament and this hope of a Messiah, this messianic expectation. They were hoping that this savior figure would would arrive, this prophesied king and warrior and leader would show up to make the nation of Israel great again. That's really what hope meant for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And for today's episode, I want to look at three key messianic prophecies of hope in the Old Testament. I want to open up our Bibles to the Old Testament, and I want to see where this concept of hope is first developed, and then where it's carried through the Old Testament. And and finally, at the end today, we're going to look at how all of this was fulfilled in the person of Jesus, that Jesus was this messianic hope after all. And the first scripture that we're going to turn to is actually in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. So it's the third chapter of the first book of the Bible. And verse 15 says this, and maybe you never thought of this as a Christmas verse, but it really is. Here's what it says. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, the context for this passage is that this is God speaking to Satan after he deceived Adam and Eve, and they sinned. God said to Satan, I'm going to cause this hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And this is such a significant verse that it has a special, it has a special name in, in theology. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, which literally means the first gospel or the first mention of the gospel in scripture. Now, for those of you who maybe are newer to this, the word gospel is a Christian word that literally just means good news. It's a New Testament word. It's a word that the early church used. And so basically the gospel is that Jesus came to the world. He lived a perfect sinless life. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved, so that we could be reconciled, so that we could have peace with God. So that's a simple summary of the Christian gospel 
from a New Testament perspective, but Genesis 3.15 is the proto-evangelium, which means it's the first mention of the gospel in the scriptures. So it doesn't have all of the specifics that I just mentioned, but it's all actually there if you know what you're looking for. So when God said to Satan, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, he's referring to this conflict between human beings and Satan. He's referring to, essentially, he's referring to spiritual warfare. He's referring to the sin nature that we're always going to be battling with. And maybe in your life, it would be good for you to pause and think about the hostility in your world, in your family, the hostility that you feel, the battles that you've had to fight over over the years, the battles against evil, the battles against sin, maybe in your own personal life. Or, you know, maybe in, when it comes to family members in your world, maybe when it comes to the workplace, man, we all face so many battles. There's so much hostility in the world, and it's not just out there in the world. It's also in our own hearts. And this was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3.15, and all of this is the result of sin. Paul calls it in Galatians 5, he calls it the the works of the flesh, this this battle that we have in the flesh. Even as Christians, we have this new nature. The Holy Spirit is in us, but we still battle the flesh every single day. And again, we see the first mention of this all the way back in Genesis 3.15. So that's the word hostility. But then there's another word I want to focus in on, and it's the word offspring. Remember, God said there's going to be hostility between your offspring and her offspring. And it's, it's not just a reference to human beings there, but we see in this a reference to a specific descendant of the woman who is going to be instrumental in this conflict. Now, Genesis 12, a little bit later on in Genesis, starts to answer who this offspring might be. Now, track with me here. We're going to go on a little bit of a a journey through the Old Testament. So Genesis 12, 3, God speaks to Abram, and he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who treat you with contempt. And he says, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, later in the New Testament, Paul really focuses in on this verse. And he says, says he's talking about an offspring. All the families on the earth will be blessed through your offspring. So there's that word again. We see it in Genesis 3.15. There's this offspring who is going to battle with Satan. In Genesis 12 God tells Abram that there's going to be this offspring that's going to bring blessing to the whole world. And then as you skip to the end of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 49, as Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, in verse 10, he blesses Judah, one of his sons, and here's what he says. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So there it is again. It's a reference to this one offspring who is going to somehow figure into God's salvation plan for the world. Now, again, the authors in Genesis, the characters in Genesis didn't fully understand it because hindsight's twenty twenty. They didn't fully understand 
how this would work out. But as we go back with the New Testament in mind, with Christmas in mind, with Jesus in mind, when we go back and read Genesis 3, and we read Genesis 12 and Genesis 49, and there's so much more, these are just a few examples, we realize that this offspring that is being referenced in Genesis 3, for the very first time, this offspring is Jesus himself. That that the identity of this, this mysterious hopeful messianic figure, the identity of this, of this person is Jesus, is Jesus Christ. And so in Genesis 3.15, when God says to Satan, he, the offspring, will strike your head and you will strike his heel, it's clearly a reference to the cross and the resurrection that Satan struck a blow at the heel of Jesus. He thought it was fatal as Jesus hung there and died on the cross and went into the grave, and Satan and his minions, his demons, celebrated, and all of evil celebrated until three days later when Jesus struck the definitive blow to the head of Satan in the resurrection. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. So that's what we're seeing here in this passage, the proto-evangelium. Let me read it one more time. The first mention of the gospel in scripture, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. This imagery, by the way, is carried into the New Testament. Romans 16, 20, I love this. In the New Testament, it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I think that's a reference to Genesis 3, 15. I love that verse, the God of peace. You know, he's, he's the God of peace, but he's going to crush Satan under your feet. And he did that through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In Revelation 12, the last book of the Bible, verses 7 through 9, it says, Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Again, we see this reference to Satan, the serpent, and we see the picture of that in Genesis 3, but we see this hopeful vision that someday, even though there's going to be hostility, even though there's going to be a battle, that someday, someday Jesus is going to win the battle. And that's the messianic hope. That was the hope that the people of Israel had, and we see it for the first time in Genesis 3.15. Now, that was from the first book of the Bible. It was from the first five books, which were called the Pentateuch, the Torah. But now if we fast forward to the prophetic books, you know, toward the end of the Old Testament, we have all of the books of prophecy, and Isaiah chapter 7 contains a really interesting, hopeful verse that you've probably heard at Christmas time. It's Isaiah 7, verse 14, and here's what it says. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, if you've been around at church for any length of time during Christmas, then this verse sounds at least vaguely familiar to you because this idea of Emmanuel and a virgin giving birth to a child, it all sounds very Christmassy, but I, I want to make sure you understand, first of all, the original context 
for this prophetic verse, because whenever we look at prophecy, oftentimes there's an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, and then there's a future fulfillment of the prophecy, and that's what's going on here as well. So actually in the initial context in Isaiah 7, here's what was going on. Ahaz was the king of Judah, and he was he was facing this threat of invasion. The, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, had formed an alliance with Syria, and the alliance was against the southern kingdom of Judah. So Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's speaking these words to King Ahaz. See, Ahaz was afraid because of this potential invasion, and so in his fear, he did something that that many of us do. His, he sought assistance from an ungodly source. So he he goes, he wants to go to the powerful Assyrian empire for assistance in this, during this invasion. But the prophet Isaiah is counseling Ahaz to trust in God rather than going to Assyria for help. Isaiah was trying to assure Ahaz that this threat from Israel and Syria would not succeed. And that's what the sign was all about. This virgin conceiving a child was a promise of protection. So in the immediate historical context, this child would be born, he'd be called Emmanuel, and it would be a sign to Ahaz that by the time this child reached a certain age, the threat from Israel and Syria would be nullified. That was the immediate fulfillment of this. Let me read from the Expositor's Bible commentary on this verse. They say the best view seems to be that the mother is a royal contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, whose child's name would symbolize the presence of God, remember God with us, Emmanuel, with his people, and who would foreshadow the Messiah in whom God would be incarnate. An unmarried young woman within the royal house would shortly marry and conceive. Her son would be called Emmanuel, God with us, probably in ignorance of the prophecy. Before the child is old enough to eat the characteristic solid food of the land of promise, and so well before the age of moral discretion, the Assyrians would lay waste the lands of Aram and Israel, which they did in 732 and 733 BC, only a year or two after the prophecy was given. Now again, that's just the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, but remember, many prophecies, and this for sure is one of them, many prophecies had an immediate fulfillment, but then it also has a future fulfillment. And the future fulfillment, the bigger deal, was this messianic hope, not just for the people of Judah, you know, trying to ward off this invasion from Syria and Israel from the north, but actually for the people of God today, that this, this virgin would conceive and give birth to a child who would be God with us. Here's what Matthew 1 says, starting in verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph, But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and didn't want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. And as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, said this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. And here it is, a, a reference to Isaiah seven fourteen, right here in 
Matthew 1, verse 23. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So as we're reading Isaiah 7, 14, we see this immediate fulfillment potentially in this child probably born during Isaiah's time as a sign to King Ahaz in that immediate situation. But we also see this prophetic fulfillment, this realized hope in the Messiah, Jesus himself. And the reason we know is because it clearly says it right here in Matthew 1. We don't have to guess at this. We know that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Isaiah 7 prophecy. So we've looked at Genesis 3, we've looked at Isaiah 7, and I want to look at one more chapter in the Bible. We could do this all day, but I want to look at just one more, and it's from Isaiah chapter 9, just a couple chapters later, and it's related to the Isaiah 7 prophecy. Here's what it says in verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Now, this is another passage that is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew. A little bit later in Jesus's ministry, Matthew chapter 4, kind of early on in his ministry, actually, it says in verse 12, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth and then left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. And then it quotes what we're reading right here in Isaiah 9. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. And I love what verse 17 says. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so we see in Matthew 4, we see Isaiah 9 referenced once again, and so we don't have to guess at the prophecy from Isaiah 9, just like we didn't have to guess from Isaiah 7. We see it right here in the New Testament. It's very clear to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this light that is going to dawn in the region of Galilee. The Gospel of John talks about it as well. John 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, The Word, speaking about Jesus, the Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And John 1, 12 says, But to all who believed Him and accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. Now, there's a concept here that I want to make sure that you pay attention to, because there's a lot of talk about Galilee of the Gentiles, and the hope of the Messiah, which up until now, you know, when we read about it in Genesis 3 and we read about it in Isaiah 7, at first it seems that maybe this is just like a a hope for the nation of Israel. This is just an Israel thing. This is just a Jewish thing. But Isaiah 9 helps us to understand that it's more than a Jewish thing. It's a Gentile thing, a non-Jewish thing. That this light that is going to shine isn't just going to shine on Jerusalem. It's not just going to shine for the people of Israel. 
But even all the way back in the Old Testament, we see this concept that gets developed later in the New Testament as the, as the church is started after the ministry of Jesus, that this light was going to be offered to everyone, right? I mean, that's what John 1 said. It's going to be light that is brought to everyone, not just to the Jewish people. It's going to be for all who believed in him. It's for the Gentiles also. So this hope, this hope of the Messiah, it turns out it wasn't going to be exactly what the Jewish people were thinking. They were thinking that that the Messianic hope was very nationalistic. They viewed themselves as the, the favorites of God, God's special chosen people. And they were, they were God's chosen people, but they weren't exclusively chosen like as if God wasn't interested in other nations. No, they were chosen, turns out, they were chosen to bring this offspring. They were chosen to bring Jesus into the world. That's what God was using them for, that this offspring who would come from the line of Abraham and eventually, you know, Judah and David, and we see this in Matthew as Matthew opens his gospel, the genealogy of Christ, that sure enough, this this chosen one, this offspring would come from from the line of David, just as, just as was prophesied. But that's what the choice was about, that God chose the nation of Israel to bring the Messiah into the world who wouldn't just bless the nation of Israel, but would bless the whole world, would bring light to the whole world. And that's what we see played out in later on in the book of Acts, as originally the gospel was coming to the Jewish people, but about midway through the book of Acts, we see that it it opens up to all the people, the Romans, the Greeks, everybody, and pretty soon, Christianity clearly isn't just a Jewish thing. And that's why we celebrate Jesus as the Messiah. He's the Messiah for all of us. He's the Savior for all of us. He's the hope of the whole world, not just the hope of the Jews. And I want to read one more verse from Isaiah 9 because, again, this is, this is something that you would encounter at church at Christmas time as well. This is another very Christmassy verse. But now that you understand all this context, maybe you can understand this verse a little bit better. It says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this child who is born to us is clearly referring back to Isaiah 7, 14. Remember where it says this virgin will give birth to a child. And now we're seeing a little bit more about this child, that he's going to be born to us, and the government's going to rest on his shoulder. And I want to break down these these four monikers, these four names that this child is given. First one is wonderful counselor, and the Hebrew word is pele, and it's actually a noun. It's not just saying that Jesus is wonderful, but it's saying that Jesus or this child is a wonder. That's a word that means extraordinary, unbelievable, difficult to understand. And boy, isn't that true of Jesus? Jesus was unbelievable. He was so hard to understand. You couldn't wrap your mind around all the miracles, all the ministry that he performed. Jesus wasn't just wonderful. Jesus was a wonder. And then it says that he'll be called Mighty God. And in Hebrew, this is El Gibor, which means God is a mighty warrior. Now, this might have contributed to this idea that the Jewish people had, even in Jesus's day, that the Messiah 
would be a warrior, kind of like King David was a warrior, that the Messiah would be born into the world. And and truly, the Jewish people were expecting this from Jesus in his day. They wanted him to be a warrior. They wanted him to defeat the Romans, and they thought that he would set up an earthly kingdom. That's what they that's what they were looking for. The government will rest on his shoulders that he's going to establish a new government. And the government of the Romans would no longer have political sway in the lives of the people of Israel. And of course, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. He came to set up a heavenly kingdom. And it turns out that El Gibor, which means God is a mighty warrior, is more of a reference to Jesus' nature, that he is God with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, again, which was a wonder to the people. They didn't realize that this Messiah would be God. They thought he would just be a man, but Jesus was actually God, God with us, God, mighty warrior, El Gibor. And that relates to the third title in Isaiah 9, verse 6, where it says that he'll be called Everlasting Father. And for a lot of people, you might be confused by that. For modern-day Christians, you'd say, wait a second, I thought Jesus is the Son. How are you saying that he's the Everlasting Father? Well, actually, the Hebrew word for this is the word aviad, which literally means Father of Eternity. So a better way to understand this, when you think of the word father in Hebrew, that the concept of that was author or originator or even possessor. So think of everlasting father instead. Think of it like this, is that Jesus would be the possessor of eternity or the author of eternity. And see, that makes more sense because John 1 says this in verse 4, the word Jesus gave life to everything that was created, that, that before anything was created, Jesus was there. It makes sense. Again, in retrospect, we can look at that and we can see in Isaiah 9 verse 6 that, that this is talking about the fact that Jesus, this wonder, this El Gibor, this mighty God, was also the father of eternity, that Jesus isn't just a human being who just had a beginning 2,000 years ago and was born into the world, but know that Jesus, this Messiah figure, was greater than the Israelites could have even understood, that Jesus would actually be God himself, the author of eternity. And that brings this whole concept of hope into clearer focus. You know, we started with Genesis 3.15. We see that the very first time this concept of battle between good and evil would be fulfilled in this future offspring that, you know, Adam and Eve didn't know who that was going to be. There's no way. And, and we see that develop throughout the Old Testament in Isaiah 7, 14, that we get a little bit more of a picture of this hope of this world, this offspring, that it would be a child born to a virgin. And we're getting just a little bit more of a picture and that, that he would come to bring light to the whole world. But here by the end of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we see that this is more than just a human being, that this, this messianic hope, this offspring who would come into the world, who would be the hope of not just the Jews, but also of the Gentiles, that this, that this figure, this hopeful savior figure would be more than a man, but that he would be God, that the hope of the world is God himself. The hope of the world can't be, can't be found in any human being. The hope of the world can only be found in Jesus, who is fully man and fully God. See, the Messiah came in the person of Jesus Christ, and he was worth the wait 
for the people of Israel, and for Gentiles like you and me. But sadly, many people fail to see him for who he truly is. Many people still try to find hope in temporal things. Now for you, I don't know what you're hoping for this Christmas, but I want you to know that all of our deepest desires can only be fulfilled in Jesus. Maybe your heart is sick this Christmas season because your hope has been deferred. You've been hoping, expecting, longing for something, maybe something you've been praying for for years. I want to encourage you to turn to Jesus this Christmas season. Give it to him. Share your your desires, your needs, your struggles, your frustrations, your fears. Share those with Jesus because Jesus truly is the hope of the world. Jesus wants to bring light into our worlds, and we can only find that light in Christ. Now, be sure to join us next week because I don't know if you noticed, but I left off that last name in Isaiah 9-6 where it says that he will be called Prince of Peace. And I did that on purpose because next week we're going to look at the second concept in the idea of Advent. We're going to look at peace and how Jesus connects to that term. Join us.